up right now on the family called the family tree. Today, I want to talk about, we've talked about a number of different subjects, but today I want to talk about envy. And I want to talk about how envy can wreak devastating havoc on a family and everyone in a family. I want to ask you first to turn with me to a very famous passage of scripture, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, If you've been to more than one wedding in your life, you have probably heard this passage read because it is a favorite of brides, often referred to uh, as the love passage. Uh, Just a little quick reset on this series, just so that you understand uh, if you're new. We're thinking in this series about the unintended consequences on the family of two fundamentally different approaches to life symbolized by two trees in the Bible. One approach to life could be described as building your life and family around the tree that Adam and Eve ate from in the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The other approach to life could be described as building your life and family around the cross of Jesus Christ, which I know it sounds odd, but often in the Bible, the cross is referred to figuratively as a tree. Which tree you build your life and your family around Uh, has dramatic effects, uh, consequences, good and bad, uh, for your family. It will affect your marriage, it will affect your kids, it will affect your grandkids, it will affect everyone, okay? Now, what I want to do, let's move into this very famous passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 13. I have to tell you that one of the things that's funny about this passage is that as much as brides love to have this passage read at their weddings because it sounds so romantic to them, In reality, this passage was intended as a rebuke to human beings regarding our incapacity to love in the way that Christ loves. So let me read it, and then I'll explain. Let's start verse 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It says, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. I'm not going to have time to go into all of that today, Uh, just a few parts of this. But let me ask first, anyone ever heard that passage read at a wedding in the past? Raise your hand if you have. Lots of you. Yeah, it's really, really, uh, really popular. It's a great passage. I'm not suggesting it's wrong to read it at a wedding. It's just that when you read it in isolation, you miss the rebuke of the passage, but you also miss the explosive impact of this passage. I want to just tell you a little bit about the church to which this passage was written, and I think you'll understand a little bit more about why I say uh, it was a a rebuke. I think it's fair to say that the church in Corinth, I think it's fair to say they're a church full of really sincere people. They, they, They were people who genuinely wanted to build their lives around the cross of Christ. They certainly put their faith in Christ. That's not the question. They believe in Christ. No question about that. But the established ways of thinking that they learned from their families of origin uh, and, the, and the behaviors that accompany them uh, keep rearing their ugly heads. Like even though these people have believed in Christ, they haven't figured out yet how to build the totality of their lives around the cross of Christ. Now look, that's not, that's not unusual. Anyone here who's uh, put your faith in Christ, you know this tendency to revert back to old patterns of thinking and living. Like you believe in Christ, uh, but you routinely find yourself thinking in ways and and behaving in ways that are contrary to what you believe about Christ. That's not hypocrisy, by the way. That's not hypocrisy. Uh, That's the process of spiritual growth and development in Christ. We fail, we learn, we fail, we learn, we grow, we grow, right? That's, That's what the process looks like. 
Now, many of these people in Corinth, I mean, like, they're, they're new converts. They're on fire. Like, they can't believe what Jesus Christ has done for them. They're excited about that. They're passionate. They're zealous. They also happen to be wealthy uh, and extremely talented people. They're high-capacity people. They're motivated. They're hungry to learn the Bible. Some of the greatest teachers in the world at the time taught at Corinth. They've got a vision. They, they want to move the gospel forward by building a great church. But for the life of them, with all of that stuff going on for them, for the life of them, they can't get along with each other. Like they're constantly mired in one dispute after another. They're at each other's throats, their fights, their arguments, their divisions. They were even spilling out into the public square, which was incredibly embarrassing to the cause of Christ. Now to them, that didn't seem like a big deal. All of that division, all of that fighting, all that arguing, that seemed normal. After all, that's, 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 that's how they know, that's how they learned how to live life. But Paul writes this letter to reprimand them. And this passage is sort of the crux of all that he's saying to them. I want to go back and I want to read the first three verses. And I think you'll see uh, what I mean. He says to these incredibly passionate, gifted, talented, motivated new believers in Jesus Christ. He says, if I speak in the, verse one, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I, uh, I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, uh, I gain nothing. Now, uh, throughout recent church history, like in the last 100 years or so, people have consistently missed the point of these verses because, well, why? Why have they consistently missed the point of these uh, verses? Well, it's because they get all caught up in the wrong in the wrong things. They get all caught up in this, these ideas about tongues and prophecy and, and all. And by the way, I don't have time to go into all of that today, what that's all about, but that's okay because that's not the point of these verses anyway. What's the phrase? What's the phrase that Paul repeats three different times uh, in this passage? Did you see it? The phrase that he keeps repeating over and over and over in these, three, in these verses? Three verses, three times. Yes. But have not love. Uh, that's the point of those verses, but have not love. And that's the whole point, really, of the whole book of 1 Corinthians. That's the reprimand. That's the problem in this church. They are unbelievably talented, motivated, passionate, on fire people, but they have not love. Like, they don't know how to love each other. They don't know how to play nice with each other. And I promise I'll bring this around to the family in just a moment, but I, I want to tell you this. The other day I was talking to a friend of mine and I was telling him that over the years, uh, I've seen this happen in churches repeatedly, that people often get elevated to positions of leadership because of three different things. One, their personal success. Two, their spiritual disciplines. Or three, their talent and their giftedness. So like their personal su success, uh, their spiritual disciplines, like they talk a lot about Bible study and prayer or something, uh, or their own personal talent giftedness. Maybe they're a good communicator or something like that. They get elevated to positions of leadership because of that. And what Paul is telling us here is that you can be enormously successful. You can be enormously spiritually disciplined. You can be enormously gifted and talented, but success, spiritual disciplines, nor talent are necessarily accurate gauges of spiritual maturity. You can be all of those things and not know the first thing about love, which is, by the way, why so many churches are painfully political. And why so many churches blow up? Because they lack emotional and spiritual maturity at the top. The inability to love people 
That's what spiritual maturity looks like. Not Bible knowledge, although that's good. Not prayer life, although that's good. What spiritual maturity looks, the purpose for Bible study, the purpose for prayer, the purpose for all of the things we do is so that you can learn to love. That's what spiritual maturity looks like. And many churches lack that at the very top. That was true of the Corinthian church. They were successful. They were fascinated by the Bible. They were talented. They were gifted, but they could not get along. Now, I want you to write this down somewhere. I want you to make a note of it because it will change your marriage and it will change your family if you understand this. And we're going to see this is what Paul is, te- is teaching us, what he's telling the Corinthians to. I want you to write this down or make note of this. The way you measure your own value dictates your ability to love others. Uh, let me say that again. The way that you measure your own value dictates your ability to love others. That's why the church in Corinth isn't loving to each other. And let me explain. I want you to notice something about the structure of this passage. You got the first three verses. They speak about the importance of loving each other. This is sort of the subject of the, of the verses. Notice again what Paul says next. He says, love is patient and love is kind. Now, that's about your relationship with other people. You're patient with them. You love other people, okay? how you should treat them. But notice what he says next. He says, love does not envy, it doesn't boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. That's about your relationship with yourself. So love is patient, love is kind, is about other people and how you relate to them. All this other stuff, envy, boasting, all that stuff, that's about how you relate to yourself. And what he's saying is the way you think about yourself affects the capacity to love others. There's a relationship between these two things. And let me give you an example. A personal example from my own life. Paul says, love does not envy. That's the word we're going to focus on this morning. One night in the last couple of weeks after one of those long, hot summer do- uh, days, I had a, I had a, lot, a little time, not, not a lot, I had a little time to kill. So I sat down on the couch, and I flipped on the TV to see if there was something I wanted to watch. And some of you, I know, as soon as I say I, I flipped on the TV, you're probably thinking to yourself, he's probably old school about TV. He still has cable. He still has a dish or something like that. Let me tell you something. You're wrong about me. I am so much more cutting edge than that. I sat down. I'm way more hip and happening. I sat down. I turned on my Apple TV. I clicked on my YouTube TV app, and I began to scroll through the guide to see what was on. And I scrolled past you know, I scrolled past all of the cable news stations. I wasn't in the mood to watch talking heads argue. Uh, there were a few game shows, not interested. At least a dozen real insane housewives of somewhere or another, like not interested in that. Some decade-old movies, not interested. Honestly, there wasn't anything I was really interested in, but I guess because it's been so hot outside. I landed on a show that I've, like, I've never seen before, and it was on the DI network, uh, DIY network, and it's called uh, Pool Kings. Like anyone ever seen this movie? Or this TV show, I'm sorry. Anyone seen this TV show, Pool King? All right, yeah. Now, for those of you who haven't seen it, I'm going to show you some clips. Uh, I'm going to show you four clips, 30-second uh, clips, so a minute and 20 seconds of clips from Pool Kings. I had to watch this for 30 minutes, but you're going to watch it for a minute and 20 seconds. Go ahead, uh, roll these clips. <laughs> wow.
That's Paul one. Family, here's, here's your Mountain Lake Resort. What do you think? Oh, that's cool. Look at that. This is the best pool I think I've ever seen. She thinks that. Now, the reason we show you this is that we've decided, and by we, I mean me, that the pastor's house ought to have one of these in the backyard. We're raising money for that today. Uh, no, I'm kidding you. Um, when I turned that show on, all I wanted to do was, like, veg out for, uh, and, you know, just be entertained for about 30 minutes. I was completely unprepared for the kaleidoscope of emotions that I experienced after seeing the pools that these families were having built. The first thing I felt was self-loathing. I said to my wife, I'm a loser. She paused for a beat longer than I think she should have <laughs> before she said, because I think she thought maybe that too. Um, I moved from that to discontent. How could I ever look at my backyard the same? Like, we got a patio. There's a little waterfall, but you can't do anything in it except look at it and fix it. You can do that. But you can't jump in it. You can't get on a float and ride it. Never realized how boring that waterfall was until I watched that show. Then third, out of self-preservation, I cycled quickly into judgmentalness and righteousness. There's a clean water shortage in many parts of the world. Instead of spending that money on themselves, they could have given it to people who need clean water. That's what I would have done. That's what I said to myself. And then finally, out of desperation, I got mean. I said to Amy, do you see those husbands? You didn't see them in the show, in these clips, but they're in the show. I said, did you see these husbands? I said, what could they possibly do to make that much money? That must have been inherited money because they look too stupid to make that much money. I'm not proud of any of this. <laughs> I'm just telling you that's what it is. You know that little, the last clip, you see that little girl jump in the pool and she gives a peace sign that she sticks out her tongue. I feel like she was doing that to me personally. <laughs> like, look what I got and you don't have this. That's, that's honest to, honestly what, uh, what I felt. Again, I'm not proud of any of this. I'm just telling you that's what happened and I've been recovering it uh, from it ever since. I want you to listen to a quote from the author and social critic, Oz Guinness. I want you to listen to what he says about envy. And I want you to see, uh, I want you to listen, I want you to see if this doesn't describe precisely what was happening to me. He says, envy enters 
When seeing someone else's happiness or success, we feel ourselves called into question. And then out of the hurt of our wounded self-esteem, we seek to bring the other person down to our level by word or deed. They belittle us by their success, we feel. We should bring them down to their deserved level. Envy helps us feel. Full-blown envy, in short, is dejection plus disparagement uh, plus destruction. And that's an embarrassingly accurate description of what that stupid show had evoked in me, uh, envy. My self-esteem had been wounded. I felt my value had been called into question. I felt belittled. I felt shamed. As I sat there and I watched these other men, I'm assuming it was men, don't beat up on me. You know, you get my point. Uh, but these men provide these incredible backyard paradises uh, for their families. And had I known any any of these men, imagine my reaction to them. And I, I, you know, I think you know what that would look like because you've experienced this too. Like your sister-in-law remodels some part of her house every other year, and you've lived in the same house for twenty years and never once remodeled it. Like you dread the holidays, don't you? When you're going to have to listen to her talk about that, you smile when she talks about it, but you grit your teeth through it. That's how I might have handled it if I knew these men and they were showing me their backyard paradises. Or when your coworker who started the company the same time you did says, guess what, I got a promotion and I'm gonna be your manager now. On the outside, you're like, that's great. But we can hear it in your voice that what you're really thinking is, if I had a knife, I'd slip, slit your throat right now. Manage that, that's what you're thinking to yourself. <laughs> and maybe that's how I would have handled it. And see, what, what Paul is saying is that this, there's a relationship between your ability to love other people And how you measure your value. The way you measure your value dictates your ability to love other people. If you feel valued, if you feel worthy, if you feel like you matter, you can love other people. You won't be envious of them. You can root for their success. If you don't feel valued, if you don't feel worthy, if you don't feel like you matter, you can't really love other people. Not the way that Paul is writing about here. I used to have a friend who was in... Uh, he was in the financial uh, industry, uh, some job. I never understood what it was he did. Hedge funds, derivatives, lollipops. I, I never understood exactly what it was, but he was wildly successful. Anyway, he used to tell me uh, that it wasn't about the money for him. I think he was trying to tell me that he wasn't greedy. And so he used to say, Jeff, it's not about the money. The money is just a way to keep score. And I think that falls into the category of distinction without a difference. But listen to what he said. Did you hear what he said? He said he, said he was keeping score. Why do you keep score? What are, you, what are you keeping score for? It's because you want to know who's ahead and, and who's behind in your place, uh, in the pecking order. He's talking about measuring value. He's talking about worth. He's talking about measuring meaning. And there can be all kinds of ways that you can keep score, right? Here's one, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Beauty, right? That's a way you keep score. Money. Who's got the most followers on social media? Who's got the biggest church? That's a big one among pastors. Who takes the nicest vacations? Whose kids have the most achievements, awards, sports, grades, popularity? All of those are measuring sticks. And what do all of those amount to? What are all those measuring sticks? What are all those scorecards, if you will? What do they all have in common? What do they all have in common? Performance. Achievement. Success. 
And if you've been with us throughout this series, you may, it may have occurred to you that all of those things are the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Measuring yourself, I should say, by all of those things. That's the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve's rebellion, if you remember, was an act of autonomous self-justification. I don't need you, God. Uh, I can determine my value. I can determine meaning in life. I can do all of that without you. I do not need you. Autonomous self-justification. I realize justification uh, is a big theological word. Maybe think of it in in these terms. Think of it as self-validation. I will prove that I am valuable by my achievements, by my performance, by my success. I will prove my worth as a human being by my achievements, my grades, my beauty, uh, my money, my, the, uh, the amount of money in my bank account, uh, the size of my house, whatever. I will validate my life. I will justify my life. Self-validation. Self-justification, that's the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But I want you to notice something that Paul says here. And I want you to write this down. That envy is a sign of a self-justifying, unloving heart. Like envy is a sign that you're building your life around the autonomous Self-justification that is the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Love, Paul says, does not envy. And there are other signs of an unjustifying, unloving heart he mentions here too. I'm not going to talk about those today in the interest of time. One of those things, he says, is envy. I think most of us struggle, uh, know that we struggle with envy. But lest you think that you are exempt from envy, I want you to do this as a test. I want you to think about someone you know who you tend to be competitive with. Who, who is that? Like, think, think right now. Call them to the forefront of your mind. Somebody that you tend to be competitive with. Who is that? Is it your brother, sister, sister-in-law, an old classmate? I don't know. Who, who is it? You got that person in your mind? Uh, nod your head. So let me know. Nod your, you got that person in your mind? Okay. Now, here's what I want you to pray for them. All right? God, make that person wildly more successful than me. How'd that feel? If there's any part of you that resisted at that, you struggle with envy. Now think with me for a moment. I want you to think with me for a moment about the effect of a culture of envy in a family. And you know that happens. Uh, Families can have a culture of envy. They hear the things that their parents say. The kids hear the things that their parents say about someone else who has more. They see how their parents live, how they model it. Husbands and wives talk about envy with other people or with themselves, how they envy other people. I want you to I want to think about the effect of that. And I want to mention f- quickly five effects of envy uh, on a family. And let me just say first that envy creates perpetual discontent in members of the family. Like there's always someone who has more. There's always someone who's prettier, someone who's achieved more, someone who's more accomplished, someone who's more talented. If I measure value by performance, I can never enjoy who I am, the gifts I've been given, what I have in the here and the now. It is never enough. Perpetual discontent. 
Here's a second effect of envy on the family. It alienates. Envy alienates. If I measure value by performance, I can't love you. I can hate you. I can use you. I can pity you. I can put up with you out of self-interest, but I can't really love you. And by the way, using you and putting up with you out of self-interest is what passes for love in most marriages. Here's the third. Envy creates despair among members of a family. Ever heard this saying, compare and despair? That's what I was doing with the pool people. Compare and despair. This is why Facebook depression is a real thing. You compare your lives to other people's apparently perfect lives and you despair. You get depressed. Why isn't my life like theirs? Why haven't I achieved as much? Why aren't I prettier? Uh, Why aren't I more talented? Why aren't my kids better? Why haven't they achieved more? Something's wrong with my life. Uh, Envy creates despair in a family and among kids. Here's a fourth one. Envy leaves children with little self-awareness. A culture of envy in the family leaves the children of that family with little self-awareness. Why? Because envy teaches children that they are only as good as what they do, not who they are. If a child is constantly having to prove themselves, achieve, win, perform, there isn't any time to understand. I don't even know that I have an inner world because everything is focused on my outer world and what I do. And so it leaves children with little self-awareness. And then finally, and perhaps the most devastating of envy, at least the ones that I want to mention, is that envy teaches children that life's greatest treasures are earthly Envy teaches children that life's greatest treasures are earthly. And so that is what they will pursue with all of their hearts and all of their minds and all of their souls, earthly treasures. But I just want to quote for a moment from the great Fred Rogers, a.k.a. Mr. Rogers. He put it this way one day during a White House council that he was invited to speak at. And he said this, he said, what is essential to life is invisible to the eye. Now, let me just say that again for everyone's benefit here. What is essential to life is invisible uh, to the eye. Do your kids know that? Do you know that? Is that how you prioritize your life? In short, a culture of envy in the family is toxic to the relational well-being, the emotional well-being, and the spiritual well-being of everyone in the family. The way that you measure your own value dictates your ability uh, to love others. If you feel like that your value is determined by your performance, you can never really love other people, Not, not in a way that Christ loves people. The good news is that there is a cure for envy. When Paul tells these people in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, love does not envy, you have to remember once again, uh, it's important that you get this, that this comes out of a larger context. You can't just isolate this passage of Scripture. I want, you to, I want to give you the larger context of that, of that verse. Listen to this. Paul says in chapter 1, when he's laying a foundation for the things he wants to say later about envy, for instance, to these people. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness 
to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What he's saying is that through the cross, which to many people seems primitive, ridiculous, offensive, he's saying that through the cross, the power of God liberates us from the pressure of having to self-justify, which then frees us to move out of our envy and genuinely love other people. But it's only through the cross that that's possible. Why? We saw it last week, if you were here with us. And I just want to warn you in advance that every week from now on, throughout the rest of this series, we're going to come back to this concept, this idea. Paul calls it justification through faith in Christ. Think of it as validation and vindication of your life by faith in Christ. Paul says in Romans 5, we read this last week, therefore, since we are justified through faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you think of that as just simply being a theological thing, but let me tell you, it's a very practical thing. In other words, once you believe in Christ, everything is settled with God. You have peace with God. Your sins have been paid by Jesus Christ on the cross. You've been declared to be worthy of a relationship with with God through Christ. It also means that you've been validated by the creator of the universe, not by your performance, not by your achievement, not by your success, but by Christ's performance, by Christ's achievement, by Christ's life and his death on the cross. And if I may repeat from last week, if you believe in Christ, your life has been so validated and so vindicated that there is no more value to add. And there is nothing to lose. You're playing with house money now. I want you to imagine uh, watering a plant. What happens when you pour so much water into the soil that it gets saturated? What happens? Well, it just runs off. You can keep pouring if you want, but you're not adding anything to the soil anymore. It's got all the water it can hold. In the same way, you have all the value right now that you can ever have if you have faith in Jesus Christ. All the possessions in the world, all the talents in the world, all the beauty in the world, all the intelligence in the world, all the adulation in the world, all the approval of the world won't add one more drop of value to your life. Only by being justified by Christ will you ever be able to move out of your competition with other people, out of your hateful envy of others. Because only through faith in Christ are you justified by something other than your performance, by your achievement, by your beauty, by the things that you would say, these are the things that make me good. The way you measure your value dictates your ability to love other people. If you measure it by your performance, you'll never be able to love other people. If you measure your value by what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross, you got all the value in the world. Doesn't matter if someone has more than me, more possessions than me, more beauty than me, more followers on social media, a nicer pool than me, doesn't matter. I could have all those things. Wouldn't add one more value to my life. I don't envy, I don't have to envy these people. I can love them. I can truly celebrate them. I can truly celebrate what they have. I can be thankful. I can even pray the prayer, Lord, make my friend wildly more successful than me. Because that's not going to add one more value, one more drop of value to my life. I've been validated. I've been vindicated. I'm full. 
Let me close with this. Please listen to this. Because if you get this, it'll change your family's priorities. If you have children this morning, the best thing that will ever happen to your child won't be their success in the classroom. It won't be their success on the playing field. It won't be the votes they got for prom king or queen. It won't be the college that, that they went to. It won't be the vacations that you were able to provide them or any other human talent, achievement, gift, or accomplishment. The best thing that could ever happen to your child would be to believe in Christ and to be liberated from the pressure of self-justifying and the envy that comes with it. Build your family around the cross of Christ, not the classroom, not the soccer field, not the beauty pageant, not social media, not your neighbor's priorities. Build your family around the cross of Christ. Boast in the cross of Christ alone, not performance, not beauty, not any of that stuff. Boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. Put your kids in places that they can hear the gospel over and over and over again. Preach it to them at home. Model it to them at home. Model it to them in the priorities that you have, that you have. Model it to them in the priorities that you have for their lives. Preach it to them. Model it. Boast in the power of the cross at home, not in human achievement. And you and your family will be liberated from the need to self-justify by the power of God. And you'll be able to love one another and you'll be able to love other people in ways that are supernatural. You can build your life and your family around the cross or you can build it around the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One leads to peace, emotional health, relational health spiritual health. The other leads to the constant pressure of having to self-justify and to compete with everyone that comes across your path. Choose wisely. Would you bow your heads with me? I confess my envy, Lord, and I confess my inability to love people because too often I revert back to measuring my value by, you know, by success or achievement or performance or whatever. Would you repeat that to yourself? Would you confess that to the Lord? Or for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ this morning, would you just remind us, would you take this truth deeply into our souls that we've been validated, that there's nothing, uh, there's no amount of success or performance that can add one more thing to our value, one drop to our value. We've got it all. Our cups are full and flowing over. And so, Lord, once we understand that, would you, would you give us the ability to understand that, to get that into our hearts so that we can begin to love one another and love each other and uh, excuse me, love other people um, with the love that you have for us. And then, Lord, would you drive this home uh, to our children, to our grandchildren? Forgive us, Lord, for building our priorities around other things and thinking that their hope, our kids' hope, is in whether they get in the right college, get the right scholarships, good at this sport, whatever. Lord, remind us that our kids' greatest hope is in relationship with you, where they'll be freed from the pressure of self-justifying. And Lord, would you drive again, would you again drive that home uh, to us in ways that I personally, as, a, as just a human pastor, can't get that home uh, in these folks' lives. And would you drive it home in my life, too? 
We pray these things now. In Christ's name.